Hello and welcome to this Coracle Online podcast in association with Maritime Executive magazine. We'd also like to thank the sponsor of this podcast, AMVA. AMVA is a voluntary worldwide search and rescue system sponsored by the United States Coast Guard. Since 1958, AMVA has provided a worldwide blanket of protection at sea with participation from tens of thousands of vessels from over 140 nations, countless lives have been saved and on any day there are over 3,600 ships available to assist those in distress. Enroll your ships today at www.amva.com to ensure no call for help goes unanswered. Did you know that Coracle has a new email-based ship types course? You can sign up for free for this six-day course from coracleonline.com. This podcast from the Maritime Executive magazine, the true business journal for maritime executives, looks at the maritime aspect of the intermodal supply chain as it joins all others in terms of regulatory enforcement, prosecution and verifications. Back in 1982, the second mate on the US flag coastwise tanker Neversail popped up to his cabin after being relieved by the chief mate on deck and quickly changed into his running gear. By 1730 hours, he had returned from a brisk five-mile run along the beach at Fort Lauderdale, showered and changed into some street clothes. Minutes later, he was ambling down to his favourite restaurant for a sandwich and a couple of beers. A little later, with dinner finished and little else to do until his next watch at 2400 hours, he decided to have one more draft. By 1930 hours, he was back on board. The brightly lit deck of the parcel tanker was a mess. Air-powered pumps were everywhere, siphoning murky liquid off the deck into the cofferdams. Where the decks were finally free of whatever had been spilled, bales of sawdust had been emptied onto the deck as absorbents. At least three Coast Guard Marine safety personnel were on board. After determining that at least one of the ballast tanks had overflowed, also spilling gasoline residues onto the deck and sadly into the water, the second mate quickly headed for his cabin to catch a quick three hours of sleep before before assuming the next watch at midnight. By that time, the Coast Guard was gone, the discharge operation had nearly been completed, and just one tank remained to be stripped. In the days that followed, little was heard about the incident beyond the word from the Home Office that the vessel had been issued a citation, and the mate on deck at the time of the spill, a written warning from the master. Pollution, although not in significant volumes, had occurred, and the mate on watch had carelessly allowed three dirty ballast tanks to overflow for more than five minutes each. When the vessel departed, the harbour was more than a little greasier than before. Everyone kept their job and properly admonished to be a little more careful next time they did just that. 27 years later, another parcel tanker took arrival at Port Everglades. This ship, a little more modern than the Neversail, was equipped with mandated segregated ballast tanks, a double hull arrangement and a host of other equipment designed to minimise the vessel's impact on the environment. A normal discharge operation proceeded until a sudden pressure spike caused the 8-inch cargo hose to part. It took the mate on watch several minutes to stop the pumps as he'd been on deck making rounds and away from the control room. Despite his best efforts, the emergency pump stop control on deck did not stop the transfer and only after a 400-foot sprint to the control room was he able to stop the pumps. The deck control was later found to be defective. 
This time, more than a thousand barrels had escaped into the harbour, and the resulting swarm of responders, PI representatives, and Coast Guard investigators was overwhelming. The event also triggered the automatic collection of urine samples from every member of the crew. Off duty personnel were roused and quickly found themselves filling little plastic cups under the watchful eye of a strange looking guy who took copious notes. The clean up ultimately would take more than 17 hours. The legal aftermath was ugly. The vessel was issued a number of 835s, not the least of which was the citation for the unresponsive emergency pump stop station, for which at least two crew members were also cited for failing to A, properly test the device, and B, maintain it in satisfactory condition. More significantly, the second mate on this vessel, although not on watch at the time of the incident, was found to be under the influence of alcohol. Upon confirmation of the urinalysis results, the shipping company immediately fired him and the Coast Guard moved to revoke his marine licence. It turned out that he'd gone ashore after watch and consumed three beers with dinner at his favourite restaurant. Within weeks, the Department of Justice was closely involved in the matter with the intent of charging a number of ships' personnel and the vessel itself with violations of a formerly obscure law known as the Migratory Bird Act, as well as several other statutes, including the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. Eventually, two individuals would be convicted and one received a nominal jail sentence. Although the two fictional scenarios depicted above vary greatly in severity and their eventual impact on the environment, the probable aftermath of each is probably described with reasonable accuracy. But the second event, occurring in the post-Exxon Valdez era and closely following the Costco-Busan debacle in San Francisco, produced an outcome which in all likelihood can be expected to be repeated over and over again in the future. For better or for worse, the maritime world has joined its intermodal cousins under the increasingly watchful eyes of the various federal, state and international regulatory regimes. In a letter to the maritime executive editor received in August, a knowledgeable reader remarked in response to a Marex editorial first put online on the 30th of July and some letters from Marex readers... Comparing Captain Cota's sentence for negligent actions to the intentional actions of mariners involved in pollution dumping incidents is a mistake. Captain Cota's actions caused an elision with a highway bridge that could easily have resulted in far more significant damage and the potential for massive loss of life. That is not true of people who illegally discharge oil at sea, as reprehensible as that is. And it's important to remember that Captain Cota's sentence was also based on his deliberate actions to conceal the full extent of his medical problems from the Coast Guard. He was not medically competent to hold his licence. He knew so, and yet he continued to pilot ships. The writer, a former Coast Guard investigator who claims to be intimately familiar with the particulars of the case, makes some interesting points. His full letter can be read on the Maritime Executive website. We've put a link in the show notes. His comments mostly go towards addressing mariners' fears of unwarranted prosecution in the event of a marine casualty. And he goes on to say... The truth is that criminal prosecutions of mariners stemming from a marine casualty are as rare as an honest politician. In fact, the odds of administrative action against a mariner's licence for a marine casualty are also extremely low. Arguably, then, our depiction of what might happen in the case of our fictional 2009 incident, as described above, might be a little over the top 
On the other hand, I'm betting that I can find a hundred mariners who would claim that it is not. It can be argued that the regulatory oversight of marine vessels and the people who operate them has lagged behind that which has long been imposed upon the airline, railroad and the trucking industries. If so, those days are clearly over. As the editor of Marex, Joe Keefe, last signed articles on a merchant vessel in the mid-1980s, and he can't even imagine the impact and burden that the collective effect of STCW, OPA 90, ISM, ISPS, TWIC and a hundred other new protocols must have on today's ships and mariners. Going to sea has changed forever. Can anyone tell us that the new supposedly lucrative salaries being paid to today's mariners are even close to being equivalent to that which Joe's generation enjoyed for considerably less hassle on board and ashore a quarter of a century ago? No surprise then that the maritime industry is having difficulty attracting sufficient talent to spend six months or more away from home in a challenging marine environment. And it's going to take a good deal more than free broadband internet access, satellite communications and the live broadcast of a rugby match for offshore personnel to reverse that trend. The maritime industry is all grown up now. That much is obvious. With still more regulatory burdens, invasive species, wastewater, air emissions, to name just a few coming down the pike, that process is also far from over. The ultimate net effect of all of it on an industry already reeling from the impact of the current financial crises is unknown. You knew it was coming, and now it is here. Thanks for listening.